Welcome to the Forest Educator Podcast. I'm Ricardo Sierra. This episode is called Doing Hard Things, and it's really about how we develop as human beings the capacity to do things that are difficult, that are that take effort, that take determination, that take an investment, like a commitment to complete a job or complete a mission or to achieve something great, something seemingly impossible to imagine. I'm thinking about things like, oh, I want to accomplish something that's hard at an academic level, like getting a PhD or getting, for some people, it might be just graduating high school, or it could be every, it's different for everybody, but on an economic, an academic level, there's this idea around what are the things that we have to do to accomplish something that we've set for ourselves that is, is decidedly not easy. For some people, it might be building a house, somebody else, it could be getting a job, getting, moving up at the ladder in a, in your positions. It could be for some people like just battling mental health issues, battling depression. And like, it looks different for every person and it may not match what other people think of as being hard things, but uh, there are things that we do or that sometimes we choose not to do that have a lot to do with how we develop as human beings in our early years and what are some things that form that ability. Some people call it resilience which I think is a cool term and that kind of touches on it, but it's a little bit more than resilience. I wanted to just talk about this because there are layers to this and you can't start immediately with the hardest thing, obviously. But at the same time, as we start to grow, we start to change what our goals are. So when you're young, when I'm young, say I'm in I'm 12 years old. I'm like going through my life. I'm trying to figure things out. I'm, I'm right at the cusp of, or right in the middle of a tremendous amount of like rite of passage stuff going on. Like I've got brain chemicals. So my brain is growing at a rapid rate. I've got hormones going. My body's starting to build muscle. And at the same time, there's this whole social dynamic that just starts hitting me. And on top of that, expectations start going through the roof with family. All of that is happening right in a very short period of time, there's this at the same time, it's, oh yeah, what are you going to, where are you going to go to college? Where are you, you going to do after school? Where are you going? What track are you on? How, who are you going to be now? This is where you're, you are right now. You're in high school or you're going to go into high school at some point, but pretty quickly you start to get pressure to pick a lane and then make things move really quickly, at least in this culture. I know if you're listening to this and you're from Japan, it's different. I know that it's true if you if you grow up and you're, say, you're Swedish or if you're Dutch or German, you get different cultural as- aspects that are very, that are going to vary for you. If you're in a Latin American country or whatever, you just, there, there's a lot that we have to navigate as human beings. And one of the key human development traits is 
being in a place or in a position where you begin to learn how to do hard things. And I think it starts when you're young. I, I don't think it's necessarily always going to feel good when you're doing those things. In fact, if it's occurring in the right way, it probably feels really scary and really painful. And that's true for initiations. Usually when you're in a transition or an initiation experience, usually life is sucking in that moment because there's actually a question of, am I going to make it through this? And initiations are different than rites of passage because rite, rite of passage is like the ritual of the transformation of the passage from your old self to the new self. So a ritual would be something like, oh, I'm going to be graduating from high school. And so I've done all this work. And then there's this ceremony and then you graduate. And at that point you would go from being a high school student to a graduate and then mowing people's lawns for the summer or whatever you're doing and hopefully going on to whatever the next thing is for your world. But your world at that point radically changes because you're no longer going back to school. Be going forward into another school like college or whatever, but you're not going to stay the same. And that can be really terrifying. And that's part of why we have this whole graduation parties and you get gifts from people in your family financial gifts to help you on your way. A lot, when people give you stuff for graduation, it's not because they're like, oh, we're proud of you. We're giving you money because you graduated. They're giving you money so that you can buy books when you go to college or that you can buy your first car or <laughs> they're going to try to help you. That's what they're trying to do. It's not, hey, I have a bunch of free spending money now. And the idea is to support you in that transition so that you don't feel completely alone and trying to figure your way without any support. So there's a, there are rituals around that. But at the same time, sometimes you have a rite of passage or such an initiation where you're like in college and it's your third year and you're suddenly in a situation where you're renting a room in a house that for, for your school and your roommates all skip out on paying the electric bill and your power gets shut off in the middle of the semester when they've all gone overseas to study abroad in Germany or something like that. And you're just like, oh, I don't have any power and this really sucks. And now I'm spending my nights in the library because it's freezing in my house or whatever. Like all of these things start to happen that you have to then navigate something. And you, many times when you're starting to do something hard, it's not always by choice. Right. So if you break your leg by accident for some reason or your arm or your hand or whatever, and you suddenly go from being able to work in construction to not being able to work in construction, you're in initiation because now you have to ask people for help. You have to figure out how you're going to pay your bills or take care of things or move back home or whatever it might be. And it's going to feel really different. And so that's one of the key things that your life is different and you're experiencing a struggle to integrate and understand and navigate this new situation. It's almost always incredibly uncomfortable. You can have it in a positive way in some ways, 
Like, for example, say you go, oh, hey, you suddenly, you're not expecting it, but you fall in love with somebody. You're at your new job. You're like doing your thing. And all of a sudden you meet someone and you're just like head over heels. And so there might be a lot of joy that comes from that encounter. Like one minute you're just whatever, working the counter at some restaurant or you're waiting, you're waiting tables. And then all of a sudden your world turns upside down because you have these emotions and you have this connection that you feel and everything else. And it, on the surface, it can sound like Ricardo, of course there are good initiations, right? They're happier initiations, blah, blah, blah. But let's really examine it, right? If you aren't expecting it and you get into a relationship and maybe it's your first time navigating a a serious relationship where you actually really like that person and you care about them, you can have a pretty high level of anxiety at the same time because you are very aware that you don't know what the hell you're doing. <laughs> like, like you just don't know, do they really like you? Do they like you for you or do they like you because you have a car? Do they like you? Do they like you? Do they, will they like you if they find out that you don't like peanuts or whatever, whatever we're worried about or self-conscious about, we're going to feel like, oh no. And then if something happens and that person gets upset for something or you disappoint them, you have to navigate that. Those are very high stress situations. If you're in a relationship and you don't care, then I would probably assume that you really, <laughs> you're either A, psychopathic or B, you are not really, you haven't really opened your heart. You haven't really become vulnerable enough to really have that deep connection, which is fine too, whatever. But the point is when you have these encounters in life that are these in initiatory experiences, which we all go through at different times, when those things appear, they're never it's never, oh, it's really easy. Oh, it's super, super cool or whatever. It's scary and it's stressful. And it helps if going through one of these isn't the first time you've really had to go through something that's hard. So the reason I'm posing this topic or presenting this topic as part of forest education is that I sincerely believe that teaching students or providing students with opportunities to do things that are hard is one of the key components to an incredibly successful model where you are giving them these kind of like baby steps to build their confidence to do hard things and you're breaking it down for them. You're actually helping to provide a structure for them and a map, so to speak, to go into it. I'll give you an example of why, how, why I think this is valuable and why this is important. So one of the things that occurred at our wilderness program as we were training, teaching people wilderness skills as part of our summer camp, students would come to us, spend a week with us, get really excited, we're tan in a hide, we're you know, picking wild foods, we're building shelters and sleeping in them, fire making, making spears and throwing them and having fun with that, learning tracking. We're doing all these things. And of course, it's a camp. So we're, they're getting these tastes of these hard things in a way. And of course, at a camp, we keep it fun. 
It's not incredibly difficult. We try to make opportunities for them to challenge themselves without going so difficult where they will hit the wall, as we say. And so as we're helping them through that, at some point, those students will turn around and say, hey, I want to come back next summer and be a CIT. Hey, I want to come back next summer and be a counselor. Hey, I'd like to come back and become an instructor. And there was a period in there where I would say, hey, you really need to practice. It's not enough for you to just do these wilderness skills while you're here at our camp and then do nothing the entire year. You have to get committed and take one or two skills, preferably just one, and begin to practice that every week. And can you flesh out a routine? And we had a period when we first started Hawk Circle here over in, we moved our program over here to Cherry Valley from the Hudson Valley. And when we did, there were about four young people who were not going to college, wanted to learn more wilderness skills. And they said, hey, we, can we live in the farmhouse and we'll take care of our own food, but we just really want to be here and learn and, you know, do cool stuff and learn construction and whatever else we, is needed to happen. And they really loved and were committed to this sort of vision of, you know, bringing people through this really wonderful ex experiences. And so essentially I set up for them and said, you really should start doing some training and really dive into learning more about trees, learning more about birds. And one of the ways to do that is to get field guides, start drawing some of the birds, doing the documentation and the study so that you actually know what some of these animal tracks look like and have read about it and that some of the track sizes, the track, the, the average stride length of a red fox or whatever, like you want to be able to give them the tools to do that. And so uh, I just made that as a suggestion and said, it's really important that you learn to master something so that you can internalize that process. And I did that with these young people, but I also did it with our summer campers as well, it, it, to a lesser degree. And so they had to look for field guides. This is pre-internet, so our internet was just getting started. There weren't a lot of online stores yet and everything else. I don't even think Amazon didn't exist yet or whatever. But they would start looking in used bookstores and they would start gathering field guides and they would study them and we would go out on walks and pick branches off trees and examine them as we were clearing trails. And I'd say, okay, what, what's this sapling here? And well, there's no leaves on it. It's just the stick with the buds on it. And we would talk about it and we would go tracking and I would just say, hey, what do you think of this marks? What about this? What about that? These are all things that I went through with Tom Brown. And they had to begin that process of, I'm going to show Rick that I'm serious and I'm going to read about these and maybe I'll know the answer more than he will or whatever, which was great. And we really enjoyed doing that kind of study and seeing them develop over time. 
Now, just for a minute, let me just pitch something to you that's also something from my past. So in 1986, I basically went to school at Prescott College down in Arizona. And that is an incredible outdoor school. But in 1986, it was a very small school. It was not expensive because it was really just getting started. There was an incredible amount of faculty there, but I know they were all in that pioneering maverick stage. It was awesome. It was fun. I didn't stay there that that long. But one of the things that was interesting for me was that I knew that I had been accepted like 10 months before. I was thinking, hey, I'm going to be living in Arizona. And I'm, I've lived in California. I lived in Colorado for a little while. I've lived in Massachusetts. I've lived in upstate New York. I've lived in a few different places, but I'd never lived in Arizona before. So I went to the library. And this is before, again, before the internet. And while I was there, I just started looking at the, all the resources I could get to talk, to teach me a little bit about what Arizona was like. So I looked at the, I think it was, is it Arizona highways? Like they had magazines that had beautiful photos of Arizona and I could see which ones were being shown a lot, which images, which landmarks were being photographed a lot, like the Grand Canyon and the different places throughout the state. And there was the high desert plateau. There was like the Navajo reservation, the deep canyons, slot canyons, the chaparral, the hardcore kind of desert that you get down to in the south, like as you get into the Sonoran Desert area. And I started to study what what kinds of trees grew at what different elevations, like and how were the trees different from here? So I learned that like here we have the eastern cottonwood tree, and in there they have a cottonwood tree, but they also have a Fremont cottonwood tree, which is different. We have oak trees here. They had different oak trees. We have some similarities. We have white pines. They have ponderosa pines and Douglas fir and Engelman spruce and a a lot of different things. And I started to study them. I looked at alligator junipers and Utah junipers, and I looked at lizards and I looked at snakes and I just started looking at everything. I dove into all the different native tribes there. And at a certain point, I was just like, oh my gosh, there's so much to know. But I learned a lot about the Hopi and Navajo and the Pima and all of these different communities there. One of the big factors in Arizona is just the issue of water. Like in upstate New York, water is not a fundamental issue that is, we don't have like water rights and these kinds of river allotments and corporate interests in water. It's, we have a lot of water here and we just do our thing. And yeah, sometimes there's a super fun site that GE has to pay to clean up millions of dollars. And there's issues with some of our water waterways and things that are getting cleaned up and water quality, but it's not anything like what it is in Arizona. I probably went to the library, I want to say 12 times. I took out a bunch of books. I brought them home. I read and flipped through them. I wouldn't say that I read them from cover to cover every single page, but I read a lot and I read a lot of different kinds of books. I also had read earlier in my career as a naturalist, I've read Edward Abbey. I had read different stories that were 
Native American related. I'm trying to remember some of them right now, but it's, I'm worried that I'm going to get the title wrong. So I'm not going to say anything, but I just, I just started reading as much as I could about the Southwest in general and Arizona specifically. By the time I actually got on the plane in upstate New York, flew to Arizona and got off the plane in Phoenix, I probably knew more about Arizona than, than made at least 10 or 15% of the people that even that actually live there. Like I knew stuff about the rocks, the stones, like the geology. I knew a lot of stuff because I just had done 10, 10 days of research. And I really put my kind of heart and soul into it because I wanted to learn what am I going into? What kind of survival things are available? What kinds of plants? What can I do with yucca? What can I do with cottonwood? What can I do with juniper bark or whatever? It was amazing because when I got to Prescott College, one of the things we did was we went out on a, a college orientation, new student orientation program. And so we would go on backpacking trips into, we went into the Bradshaw Mountains, we went to the Grand Canyon. And so we would just go, all right, we're out. We had some like young teaching assistants who were, they were like leading the expedition as part of their um, requirements for graduation that they had to lead so many trips. And so they helped us with packing our gear and everything. And we just headed out on the trail. And I found pretty quickly that people were asking me, what is this? What kind of tree is that? What kind of stone is that? Like, they just started asking me a lot of questions and then I would, they would look at the ground and they'd be like, what kind of tracks are these? And I'd say, oh, that's probably a spotted skunk. And it was really fun in a way because, but I was actually amazed because these people that were leading the trip had been there for four years. This was their senior year. And I knew a lot more than they did about the natural history, the flora and fauna of Arizona. I'm not saying that to brag or anything. I'm just saying that they had did, had different priorities and that was not their main thing. By the time I got done with the, my two backpacking trips and then we did academic orientation and got started, I had a number of like faculty members say, hey, Ricardo, if you'd like to go on this whitewater rafting trip, I'd love to have you on that because I think it would be a lot of fun for the other students. And normally we don't open that up for freshman, you have these skills, so you could jump the line. <laughs> Normally, you don't get into like your third year. So that's flattering. At the same time, I was, am I going to get paid? And they were like, no. And I was like, all right, maybe I will, maybe I won't. But the point is that there were opportunities that came to me, even though I didn't take them up on it, that were presenting themselves because I had done some homework, just some basic homework. That is was an experience that I had that I was trying to then give some of that, those skills to my staff. So we would talk about, okay, how are we going to work with students? How are we going to work the rite of passage angle when they're out in the woods? What kind of challenges can we do? What kind of things can we test ourselves with these nature and bushcraft skills and help us to begin to approach mastery? And what does that mean? And, and a big part of mastery is, do you want it? A big part of being a naturalist is, will you take the time to learn the differences between a red maple and a silver maple 
and a sugar maple. And, and if you don't learn that, it's not like your life's going to depend on it. But it, there is a factor in there that when you do learn it, you're making a commitment to not misidentify trees and also to actually know what the heck you're talking about so that you're not just such a generalist that you're like, hey, yeah, let's go out in the woods and what kind of trees are these? I don't know. Maybe some evergreens. I don't really know. You can't call yourself a naturalist and work with students and take them outside and not really begin to understand what is actually going on out there. What is the ecology of that area? It would be like going and trying to teach math and just being like, I don't really remember any of the formulas <laughs> for the Pythagorean theory. I don't remember any of that stuff. Math is cool, guys. And so you, yeah, you can only get by so far with just like being enthusiastic and have, you got to actually know what you're talking about. As I was doing that to my staff, like requiring that and, and not necessarily pushing them if they didn't do it, there was a consequence, but it was just highly encouraged. And they did take that up. Even some of the students that were pre-counselor level would take the time to practice and learn and grow. And if you, like, just think about this for a minute. If someone's 15 or 16 or 17 and they take the time to study some skills and they do their homework and they look things up and it's, man, in today's world with a, your phone and you can hold a smartphone and have just incredible access to every, all, just so much information. If you can take the time to really immerse yourself in that, learning about birds and learning about their bird songs and learning about their habitat and all that. And you're able to do that for something that you're just really interested in. You're creating a template, like a pathway inside that person of how to tackle and process larger amounts of information, store that information, and also sort out what's relevant, what's not, and begin to formulate a deeper sense of the world around us. And you're also able to look at, let me, I'll give you a, a clue. Most field guides are not that entertaining. Wild edible foods ones, hey, that, I could get into that. Sam Thayer, he's awesome. He, he's an incredibly great author. I have friends, Vicki Schufer. There's a ton of people that I know who work really hard to make these things as interesting as possible. But sometimes it's dry. Sometimes it's just data. It's like measurements and very basic descriptions of plants, basal flowers or basal leaves. And I'm, I'm drawing a blank right now because it's late, but I'm just like, there's a lot of different things and terms that you have to just get to know. You have to know the difference between a primary feathers, secondary feathers, tertiary feathers. Like you just, you need to know the difference between tail feathers of a bird, breast feathers, their wing feathers or whatever. They're all different and they matter if you're really going to learn about birds. So these are things that when you build that level of detail and you're paying attention to that and you're building that template in your mind, it's actually a way for someone to grow the capacity 
to do things that are hard. If you learn that when you're 12, 13, if, you're, if you do it when you're nine and you start having a little field guide, a nature journal, whatever, if you can do that when you're nine, then make it more complex when you're 12, then make it more complex when you're 14. By the time you go to college, you're going to have the capacity to focus, ideally. Now, obviously, we don't know. There lots, there's lots of different moving parts in our child, in a childhood and a young adult's life. So who knows? But your capacity is definitely going to be better than someone who hasn't done any of that. These, and I'm not just saying it's naturalist. It could be learning how to do first aid or learning how to make a fire without match. It doesn't have to just be learning every bird or whatever. But the idea here is that you're building these pathways to learn about mastery and learn about how to do something that's hard. And it gives you an incredible advantage when you go to your first job and you go, hey, I'm going to apply at this job. Hey, I'm going to look that look up the company. I'm going to look online. I'm going to look at, what is it, Glassdoor. I'm going to research what other employees are saying about it. I'm going to research what the industry is saying about it. I'm going to research them based on their own website. I'm going to look for discrepancies. I'm going to look them up in news to, so that I have a feeling of what is this something I'm excited about applying to and or is it something where I'm like, yeah, I may not want to actually even work here. But imagine the difference if you show up for a job inter- interview and you've actually done your homework. Do you think you might get a better chance at that job? I'm pretty sure you would. If you get the job, if you also then say, hey, I'm going to be the manager of XYZ or I'm going to be the whatever, the s- social media expert or whatever, if you are actually trying to learn and be better at your job and at at doing and being able to get the results that are wanted, and you're focused on that, and you're willing to implement a plan, a strategic plan and build towards that, you're going to be a lot more successful than someone who's just rolling into the job at 9.05 with your Starbucks cup of coffee and going, hey guys, what's going on? And you haven't done the homework, you haven't done the reading, and you're just going to wing it on good looks and and being the fun guy or something. It's okay to be the fun guy, but I'm just saying you got to also be able to have the capacity to get serious and also do the things that are hard. It That is one factor that I oftentimes don't hear people in the nature industry so to speak, the nature educator community. We talk about, oh yeah, creative play. We talk about just independent learning and we talk about a lot of things like gross motor skills, emotional self-regulation, all those things. And that's true and that's really important, especially as you're in preschool, kindergarten, and you start going up the ladder. But as you go further, if you are working with, say, students that you're used to working with preschool and kindergarten and suddenly you're working with like fourth graders and sixth graders that's a big difference and you are going to have to learn those things yourself in order to give them that experience like they need to see you and go oh my gosh rick's actually done his homework rick actually knows I can't really stump him on a lot of these tracking questions 
because he's already seen the difference between a red squirrel and a flying squirrel. He's already seen the difference in a crow's track and a raven track. He already knows. So they're like, okay, if I want to be like Rick, I have to actually do the homework. I have to actually get on my hands and knees and look at that deer track up close and see, you know, does the bottom of that track actually have raindrop marks in it? Or does it have a spider web growing in the bottom? Is that track like six weeks old or is it like yesterday or whatever, right? So you have to do the work in order to get that and have that. It's a hard thing. Not everybody is going to do it and that's 100% okay. But I think that in order to build that capacity in our students and actually give them tools that they need for life in what's coming, like the children that we're teaching right now, what is coming for them? We don't know exactly. Like no one knows if like climate change is going to go completely crazy in 10 years or if it's going to be 50 years or 100 years. We don't know exactly. All I know is every single time I read any articles, they're like, this glacier broke off 10 years earlier than we thought. They're looking at things and going, wow, the ocean actually is warming up five times faster than we thought. They're looking at stuff and saying, hey, the Gulf Stream might actually just shut down because there's so much fresh water pouring out of the melting ice from the Arctic and it's cooling that Gulf Stream down, which means that, guess what, England and all the France and all those places that get that warm current and they get the benefit of that warm, moist air, they ain't going to get that. What is that going to mean? We don't know. We don't know. And I'm telling you, and our economy's changing, and if there's big, giant, massive storms hitting all of these oceans, how are they going to get these ships full of all this like junk that we have to buy at Target or whatever for <laughs> on the weekends that, we are gonna, that we're going to throw away in a year? Like the, all of these things that are staples in our culture is going to change. And that means our work is going to change. Like life is going to be very different for our children. I'm talking about the children that are in preschool right now, early years, elementary, primary school, whatever. Their lives, they, we are preparing them not just to say, hey, we want them to have this like appreciation and fun learning. We want them to be curious. We want them to use their independent thinking and to feel like they can actually dig in and really study and learn things, which is great. And that's important. And as they get older, we are also wanting to maintain this idea of how do we help them learn to do things that are difficult and also to do things under duress. Like it is stressful to look down the canyon and see the oncoming storm and go, oh no, I'm six miles from my car as the river winds and the water is pouring off these hills and there's going to be more water. I might not make it to my truck. And I remember splashing to the creeks and the, I can see waterfalls flying off the slick rock hundred feet above me, just water pouring off of it. And barely making it to my truck and then taking 15 minutes just to warm my hands up enough to get my keys out of my backpack. And then I could, couldn't even get my keys into the lock and turn it because I was starting to get that hypothermia where I'm losing my dexterity. And when I finally got it, 
when I finally got it turned and I got inside of my truck and it's pouring rain, I was just like, oh no, what am I going to do? I have to take my wet sweatshirt off, which is really difficult to do in a in regular scenario, much harder to do with hypothermia, and try to turn the key in the ignition so I could get the heat going. Those are just examples of like things that can that we will be facing. So right now we're in a way looking down the canyon of a culture that is going to experience rapid adapting and changing in in multitude of ways. So I'm just going to say that again. We're looking down this canyon and we're seeing what's coming. If we're doing this work, if you're listening to this podcast and you're an educator of any kind or you're a parent or you're a grandparent or you're just somebody who's awake and you're like, "Hey, let's listen to this guy. Let's see what hear what he's yakking about." If you're sitting there and you're listening to this, there's probably a 90% chance that you're listening to this and you're also aware of those things that I'm talking about. Maybe you're aware of just how much of an effort it will take to have all of us start growing our own food because agribusiness is having problems, right? It is not easy. If we were to all go back to 1800, 1880 New England farming style or whatever, Virginia, it's a ton of work. It is brutally hard work to do that. And to if you go back to an agrarian lifestyle, the majority, I learned this in the wilderness, the majority of my time is spent looking for food, preparing food, trying to preserve the food I got, and trying to get more food of any kind, whether it's hunting, fishing, trapping, gathering, digging, whatever it is. And it is it is just an all-the-time thing. You're always thinking about it. And you're especially thinking about it in today's world. If I was, if I was transported back, say, a thousand years, where I'm sitting right now, we have the Cherry Valley Creek out 100 and 300 yards, 400 yards from my house. That Cherry Valley Creek actually is part of the Susquehanna River watershed. There would be salmon that probably swam all the way up the river to spawn somewhere up here. Like we might have salmon in that creek a thousand years ago, 800 years ago. There were woodland bison moving around. There were deer, there was turkeys, there was chestnut trees. There was all like the passenger pigeon, right? Just clouds and clouds of birds, every kind of geese. Every place I would look, there would be clean water that I could just drink out of every stream, right? These things would be flourishing under the care of the native people that live there for thousands of years. A thousand years is 10 centuries. It's just like a hundred years. These people lived on the land and it was in an incredible condition when settlers first came here. The landscape at that time was not that hard to live on if you had some good skills. But if you don't have those skills, or right now, if we walk out now, there's no passenger pigeon. The waterfowl are disappearing in a lot of ways. The numbers of birds, the types of the water quality is not good. The 
there's mercury and other chemicals in the water. Like they don't advise eating more than two meals of fish from any source in upstate New York or any place in New York. Two meals. So if you're a wilderness person and you're like, hey, let's go get a bunch of fish. There's a river right here. That's not going to be good. You're going to be concentrating an incredible amount of chemicals that probably you don't want concentrating in your body. I remember talking to a biologist who had said, hey, Ricardo, if you ever if you ever see like a roadkill turtle or you ever see a roadkill mink or any animal that actually actively is eating a lot of fish in their diet, be really careful with that. He goes, if, if when we pick up those animals, we don't just bury them in a landfill. He goes, they actually have to go to a special place because they are considered like a toxic waste in a mini way. A turtle that lives 40 years or 80 years, is in, its insides are loaded with mercury and everything else. Mink, same thing. Like, that's pretty scary. So we're not living in that world 500 years ago. And if everything did stop and we had to go back to that, we are not going to go, it's not going to just magically turn around and become that like unbelievable intact ecosystem again. It's not going to happen without an incredible amount of effort on our part. I'm painting doom and gloom picture and I'm, I'm not trying to, but what I'm really saying is the work we do is really important to give our students, our children, the best possible advantage to live a good life and to not live a, a life filled with fear and stress because they don't know how to do hard things. And if you're thinking about your nature program and you're like, I'm not really sure, I don't know if we should do bushcraft, I don't know if we should do this or that, don't look at bushcraft or don't look at some of these things as, hey, let's do these. We don't know if we really want to teach people how to make fire because, well, fires might be dangerous or whatever. You're, we're teaching them not because we think we're all going to live full survival. Hopefully that never happens. But we're teaching them those things because kids get it. If we say we're out here, we're in the wild, what would we do? Where would we sleep? How what would we eat? They get it and they can then get the motivation for that. So if you have the capacity to do some of these things, it's really important to give them these opportunities to learn the process of how to do hard things in whatever capacity. Realistically, being in a community and just talking about your feelings and sharing when you're disappointed or that you're struggling because of resolving issues and things, that's really hard too. So I'm not talking just like bushcraft stuff, but all of these things that are hard, it's really important that we begin to help them not only resolve something in the moment, but also to anticipate some of that or to really internalize the process by which we are helping to build a new world and a better world. And I can say safely that we all know examples of people who are not adapting well, who are not aware of other people, that other people exist. They are not aware of how hurtful some of the things they say is or whatever. We all have examples of those people all the time. And we don't want our children to have to deal with that. 
But unfortunately, there you're always going to have those people around probably in, to some degree, hopefully to a much lesser degree down the road. But we have to be able to build their capacity to learn and then actually do hard things. Building a shelter, that's hard. Learning how to master sleeping in that shelter and being able to sleep there without a sleeping bag in cold temperatures, much, much harder. There's just these layers. And I'm going to just drop one hard truth here, which is to say, if you are motivated right now and you're listening to this and you're like, yeah, we got to do that. If you don't actually have these skills, you need to actually do it yourself first. I, I don't mean that because I'm trying to get you in one of my programs or something. I, I, don't, I don't care where you go. All I'm saying is you need to sleep in a shelter. You need to sleep in it a bunch of times. You need to build something. You need to learn about birds. You need to learn about that. And if you're like, oh, I'm too distracted, oh, I'm tired or whatever, I'm mean, telling you, you might not want to work with kids if you're just going to phone it in and not really take care of your business. You have to want to get better and learn and grow that capacity yourself. And that comes from a really deep place. I didn't do all these wilderness skills just because I thought it was neat. My teacher, my mentor, like Tom Brown was like, this is what you need to actually be a good enough tracker to find someone who's missing. This is what you need to be a good tracker to put food on the table for your family so they don't die if you were in a long-term survival situation or whatever. This is what it means to build a shelter, make a fire without matches with nothing, no knife, nothing with rocks and whatever you find. If you can't do that, then you are going to struggle because you might not always have, I know I don't carry a lighter, I don't smoke, I don't use... I don't carry a lighter with me everywhere I go. I don't really carry a knife anymore, hardly at all. I used to carry a knife. I used to have five knives in every pocket of my jacket and stuff. And then I just was like, I don't want to have to go through the airport and throw all my knives away because I forgot they were in there. It's really important that you find something that you're into and get really good at it. Then don't just stay with that one thing. Pick other things and get better. Like... Work on your ability to do something hard. And, and to do that, you have to be inspired from that really deep place. You have to find that part of you that will overcome the inertia of it's easier to watch Amazon Prime and scroll through my phone and whatever, like whatever the other thing is that's going to just let you numb out. You either have to first stop numbing out. Second, you have to have a plan, a strategic plan that helps you take small steps to help build you there just like you want your children to go through, that you are working with, that you're in a connection, that you are in your programs. And it's really important that you have your own stories of what you're doing and these little baby steps and however you have to do that, if you need to get a little coaching team and 
accountability and you all go tracking together or learn some stuff together. Awesome. But these are the things that we need to do in order to actually help this upcoming generation have a freaking chance. I'm a little bit numb to it by now because I just know. I know what's coming. And I can feel it. I can see it. I've been watching it for 35 years, 40 years, 50 years. I've been watching this thing unfold. So I know. But I also have already spent 35 years like doing hard things. If you're showing up and you're here, there's a good chance that you've already done a lot of hard things too. So I'm not saying it like, oh, I have it, you don't. I'm, that's not what I mean. But I'm just emphasizing that doing hard things is a really important part of what we do. And I don't, just going to put a disclaimer here. Don't go out there and start taking three-year-olds and saying, we got to make fires or something and start doing a whole bunch of crazy bushcraft and try to get them to start shooting bows and arrows. It's, you have to let children develop naturally. I was working with some young children who are two and three and four years old. And man, the bones in their fingers are not even, <laughs> it almost feels like when you're holding their hand, is there even bone there? Because it feels like Gumby a little bit. Like those people, they're not able to hold a rock and then make an arrowhead by banging two rocks together. They can tap, but they just don't have the finger strength and everything. So you have to make sure that you're being as really appropriate to what their development is. But that doesn't mean you can't still learn what you want to learn. You might not always be working with that age group. I'm just throwing this out there as a topic. I don't know for sure. Sometimes at the end of this podcast, as I'm starting to wind this up, I question, is this actually valuable to any of you? Is this sharing something that is actually helping you? Because that's what I want is to help you see the value of what we are doing, all of us, with as many children as we can to help them. And we want to help them develop gross motor skills, fine motor skills. We want to help them have every advantage that we can so that they will have the capacity to solve some of today's problems in the future or tomorrow's problems. We want to be able to give them that because right now we know that there are a lot of people who are adults right now who are struggling to figure it out. And we're struggling a little bit harder because many of us have not had the exposure to nature and to doing these things at an early age. And that, that trend is going to continue for millions of people. A few years ago, I used to say, oh yeah, there's 330 million people. I think it's a 415 or something. Now, there are a lot of people in this country and many of them have never done any of these things that are sincerely hard. Is video games hard? Yeah, they are a little hard in a way, but that's completely different than planting potatoes in 85 degree weather with mosquitoes biting down your back and doing it all to plant enough potatoes to actually feed your family. That's hard. That's way, way harder than getting to level 14 on Uncharted or Grand Theft Auto. I don't know, whatever you guys are playing these days. So 
<laughs> I'm not trying to take away the value of it. I'm not trying to poo that video games are not hard or that there isn't a value to it because I know there is. And I'm glad if you're playing video games, don't, I'm not trying to shame you guys. But what I'm saying is there are differences. Getting a brown belt in Taekwondo is not the same as scrolling on Instagram or TikTok. Okay. Like these, whatever you're learning is still good. It is a little bit comparing. But I'm just saying, think about the things that you do that is hard and think about what you have done that's hard. And then think about those skills and then break that down and try to figure out this, this is what it takes to get really good at being an educator, is dialing it in, reaching out to tons of people who are already doing this work, asking lots of questions, keep asking and try to ask the right questions. All of this is just critical to all of our development as educators. And if we can continue to grow our capacity and model that for our students, we are going to give them a chance. And that's the best gift I think we can do to give our students, our children, for the future. Obviously, we want to stop increasing fossil fuels or... There's a lot of other things we can still do, but on an individual level that will really make a difference and help these students with leadership and problem solving and all of that. This is a really critical component. I just want to say thank you for what you all are doing already. I know that it is brutally hard work. I, and I say this over and over again, it is not easy doing what we do. It takes a commitment that really comes from our core. I just want to say thank you for doing that and for like standing there while people are trying to put their shoes on and they're putting the right foot and left foot on each foot differently and just taking forever. <laughs> I just, I'm, I'm telling you, it is being able to do that and have patience and grace and really still continue to breathe and be joyful and know that what you're doing is good. That is really important work and taking people who are reluctant to be on a team and getting them to go through a high ropes course or low ropes or mountaineering or any of those things. These are hard things, what we do. And I just really want to tell you that I appreciate what you're doing. I don't even know you, but I just know that I'm really grateful that you're here and doing this work at whatever capacity you are. And I really encourage you to just keep it going as much as you can because it matters. It, it matters in a massive way. And, and the seeds that we're planting, we'll really, we won't see them for probably 50 years, but they will have a tremendous difference uh, down the road. They're going to have a big impact. Anyway, thank you. I will see you next episode. Keep doing hard things. Take care. Thanks for listening to today's episode and for all the things that you do to help build a world that is connected to nature. You can get access to the bonus episodes, my forest educator nature journals and curriculum, as well as other useful content by subscribing to my Patreon page where you can support us at any level. You can find the link in the show notes for that and my website and social media as well. And I will see you outside.